In case of a nuclear attack, the protection of records is essential. If this country is to carry on its economy... Welcome back to Western Fringe, a podcast about Colorado's weird history. I'm your host, Heidi Beadle, and today we're in Colorado Springs, home of America's premier faith-based initiative, Focus on the Family. Being a transgender person in Colorado Springs is a unique experience, let me tell you. One of the things that struck me as I became a part of the queer community here in Colorado Springs was the significant number of queer exvangelicals. I've written about it extensively for the Colorado Springs Independent, and I'll be using some of that coverage for today's episode. In addition to exvangelicals, among transgender people in Colorado Springs, there is a large percentage of conversion therapy survivors. I've written about two trans folks, both of whom are very happy in their new gender, by the way, who came to Colorado Springs specifically for the conversion therapy offered by Focus on the Family. It's hard to believe now, while Colorado is second only to maybe California in the legal protections that it offers LGBTQ people, but during the 90s, Colorado was called the hate state, largely for Amendment 2, a ballot measure that prevented local municipalities from enacting anti-discrimination ordinances that was supported by Focus on the Family and other evangelical groups in Colorado Springs that we will discuss in future episodes. My knowledge of Focus on it the family, and its founder, James Dobson, was largely through that lens as a queer person. I didn't grow up in any kind of religious household. My dad said he grew up Catholic and hated it, so he didn't want to force that on us. But his dog tags are labeled Protestant, so who knows? If you're interested in hearing me talk about my weird, potentially spooky dad, check out the Seymour Cray episode. My mom was the daughter of post-World War II immigrants, my grandpa from Holland and my grandma from England, and she was not particularly religious. So aside from some weird summer weeks at Southern Baptist Vacation Bible School, I grew up without religion, which I don't think is too uncommon these days. Every so often you can find news stories about declining attendance at churches and the waning influence of the church in American society, but and this may shock some listeners, I think the mainstream media may be misstating things a bit. While the numbers of the faithful may be fluctuating, the influence of evangelical Christianity is stronger than ever in ways that secular folks like myself have no understanding or context for. The infrastructure for how evangelical conservatives have been able to control large portions of the U.S. political machine were laid decades ago by guys like Focus on the Family's James Dobson. His influence extended well beyond anti-LGBTQ policies, and from his position in Colorado Springs, he forged alliances with evangelical leaders and politicians across the seven mountains of influence. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2, Out of Focus on the Family. 
to be hard to be hard to be a decent human being much of today's research comes from the book Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation by Kristen Cobez Dumez, a history professor at Calvin University. When I got it, I was worried it would be too gender theory for the podcast since it really gets into the weeds about masculinity, but it does a good job of tying that to the broader Christian nationalist movement. I highly recommend it. Before James Dobson ran one of the largest evangelical organizations in the world, he was a psychologist. Imagine that, right? Especially after the last episode. Dobson had grown up in an evangelical family, and he graduated from Pasadena College in Southern California in 1958, and got his PhD from the University of Southern California. He then worked at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, and also became a professor of pediatrics at the USC School of Medicine. It was there he began to notice a trend among the young people he was treating. Dobson's theory, as a psychologist, mind you, was that the root of young people's mental health problems was a rejection of authority. Wild, huh? I wonder what you call someone who embraces or worships authority. It's got to be some kind of ism. It's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, um, in 1970, Dobson published his first book, Dare to Discipline. And this is from Dumez. Its subject matter was deceptively mundane. How to Discipline Children. Dobson decided to write the book after seeing too many troubled children of the 1960s come through the doors of his clinic. Believing that their problems could be traced to the breakdown of the social order, the sexual revolution, divorce, and the disintegration of the family, Dobson began dispensing old-fashioned parenting advice based on Judeo-Christian values to church and PTA groups, advice he then published in his book. Repudiating the permissive approach to child-rearing championed by the recently retired and widely celebrated Dr. Benjamin Spock, Dobson encouraged parents to reassert authority over unruly children. Spanking was a good way to accomplish this, and Dobson offered detailed instructions. He advised using a belt or a switch and keeping the implement in plain sight to remind children that insubordination brought consequences. He made clear that it wasn't necessary to beat the child into submission. A little pain went a long way. Yikes. Dobson's faith directly influenced his approach to psychology, which I would say is a pretty damning indictment of psychology during the 1960s, but... As we discussed in the last episode, this was also the era when the CIA was using psychologists to perform widespread, unethical experimentation on prisoners and mental patients to discover new techniques for brainwashing. So, suffice to say, the bar was pretty low. Dobson's book was also a kind of political reaction to things like the campus free speech movement, the sexual revolution, and the anti-war movement. Probably worth noting that Dobson himself joined the National Guard so he wouldn't get drafted and sent to Vietnam. 
1973, Dobson resigned from the American Psychological Association after they removed homosexuality from the list of mental disorders. I mean, if you can't electrocute people for being gay, what's the point, right? Three years later, he left USC and focused on radio. He started off with a 15-minute weekend show discussing his ideas on parenting and holding Focus on the Family seminars across the country. Organizations like the Christian Booksellers Association, formed in the 1950s, created a kind of parallel economy for evangelicals that persists today. Dobson tapped into those networks with a seven-part video series. According to Dumez, Produced by a Christian publisher and marketed to evangelical churches, his seven-part video series was compatible with the first VCRs. One segment of the series addressing distant fathers was packaged separately as a one-hour television special, Where's Dad? And Dobson sent a representative around the country to solicit donations from evangelical businessmen to fund its airing in local markets. This distribution model worked spectacularly well. By the early 1980s, an estimated 100 million people around the world had viewed the special. Dobson, in the same way that he tied his ideas about raising children to his evangelical faith and the political movement of the 1960s, tied his ideas on gender to the political moment of the 1970s, the decade that that a proposed comprehensive child care bill, the Equal Rights Amendment, Roe v. Wade, and Title IX were all introduced. All of which, by the way, are things that we're still kind of hashing out today. We must not abandon the biblical concept of masculinity and femininity at this delicate stage of our national history, said Dobson in 1975. In 1977, he founded Focus on the Family. And from the start, he was smart about the choices he made. In the same way that he used those evangelical networks to market his videos, Dobson used those same networks to market Focus on the Family. From Dumez. Dobson was careful, too, not to usurp the role of the local churches. Instead, he worked alongside them, offering weekly bulletin inserts, video series, and other resources for churches to distribute to their members. Pastors and elders, rural and suburban housewives, all became part of the larger Focus family. Fine doctrinal differences that may have separated Nazarene from Southern Baptist, Evangelical from Fundamentalist, made little difference when it came to Dobson's growing empire. The organization avoided divisive theological issues, and tuning in required no conversion experience, statement of faith, or claims of exclusivity. Evangelicals of all stripes turned to Dobson for advice, as did mainline Protestants and Catholics. Dobson also reached non-churchgoers, including believers but not belongers, who eschewed formal institutional affiliation. For those who believed that Christianity meant being in a relationship with Jesus, church attendance wasn't necessarily the primary marker of religious devotion. Incorporating one's beliefs into one's daily activities could be a more authentic expression of one's faith. For all its religious diversity, however, Dobson's audience remained predominantly white. Starting in 1980, Focus on the Family began getting more overtly involved in politics. 
Obviously, you could argue that, that, that it was always kind of a political organization. But in 1980, President Carter organized a White House conference on families, which brought together a bunch of diverse progressive groups and individuals such as feminists, progressive churches, black and Chicana activists, and the National Gay Task Force. Dobson used the influence of Focus on the Family to try to pressure the Carter White House into letting him take part in the event. Focus on the Family only ended up getting an invite to a pre-conference event, and that was definitely not enough. According to Dumez, Frustrated, conservatives denounced what they saw as a liberal scheme to hijack the conversation, fuming that the conference organizers had excluded conservative issues, including banning abortion, defending school prayer, and opposing gay rights from their final recommendations, conservative delegates walked out of the official conference in protest. The next month, they organized their own counter-conference in Long Beach, California, an event that united the forces of the pro-family religious right. Dobson, Phyllis Schlafly, Jerry Falwell, and the Lahais all spoke, rallying the troops. The timing was strategic. With the 1980 election weeks away, they were united in their efforts to unseat Jimmy Carter. God bless Jimmy Carter. He tried, but he didn't win. And under the newly elected Hollywood cowboy Ronnie Reagan, Dobson's influence continued to grow. Get a load of this. In the wake of the 1980 White House conference, James Dobson had established the Family Research Council, a conservative policy research organization to support pro-family policies. With Reagan in the White House, Dobson became a regular consultant to the president. Dobson even recorded one of his Focus on the Family radio broadcasts with Reagan in the Oval Office, and Reagan had appointed him co-chair of Citizens for Tax Reform and to the National Advisory Committee to the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. I'm glad that, you know, Reagan appointed the guy who believes it's cool to spank your kids and then, like, hang the spanking implement on the wall so that they can be aware of it, is, was appointed by Reagan to the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. Anyway, um, in 1980, Tim LaHaye had set aside his pastoral ministry for a full-time career in political activism. The next year, he founded his Secretive Council for National Policy. He founded it with Joe Coors, who we talked about in Episode 2, Part 2 of the Nucarado series, so check that out. Um, leaked membership directories reveal the thickening web of conservative alliances. James Dobson, Jerry Falwell, Phyllis Schlafly, Beverly Lahaye, R.J. Rushduni, Howard Phillips, Gary North, Pat Robertson, D. James Kennedy, Tony Perkins, Bill Bright, Ken Starr, Michael Ferris, Jesse Helms, John Ashcroft, Trent Lott, Richard DeVos, Elsa Prince, Eric Prince, Wayne LaPierre, Richard Vigary, Grover Norquist, Gary Bauer, Paul Weyrich, and Oliver North. It's quite a list of people Dobson was hanging out with there. Uh, pretty much all the news headlines from the 90s right there in one paragraph. It's wild. Um, even more concerning, though, in 1983, Dobson and Focus on the Family found an inn at the Pentagon. Army Chief of Staff John Wickham tapped Dobson to run a program to inculcate 
family values in the military. Wickham learned of Dobson through two members of Congress who had seen Dobson's film, Where's Dad?, Dobson and Wickham had met at a Pentagon Fellowship breakfast. Dumez doesn't say, but I have to imagine it is one of Doug Coe's events. Check out the Netflix documentary The Family for more on that stuff. Wickham arranged for Dobson's Where's Dad film to be given to all 780,000 active duty soldiers. It was mandatory viewing. This relationship was fruitful for both of them. No one knows how much the Army paid Dobson for the film, but, in turn, Dobson worked to rehabilitate the Army after Vietnam, which Dobson had avoided going to by joining the National Guard. Um, From Dumez. We've been led to believe that military generals and admirals are egocentric maniacs who are itching to blow up the world, he wrote in a Focus on the Family newsletter, but nothing could be further from the truth. Commanders like Wickham were dedicated patriots who have sacrificed dearly for their country. The military was a noble institution. It goes on to point out that in 1985, the Officers Christian Fellowship magazine Command published a special issue, The Christian Commander, urging officers to use their positions of influence for evangelistic purposes. None other than Marine Colonel John Grinnells, Oliver North's supervising officer in 1978, wrote an article detailing his long-standing practice of evangelism in command. Grinnells thought commanders ought to present Christ to those in their command, and he believed this to be mandated both by the Bible and by military regulations. Commanders, after all, were supposed to look after the spiritual welfare of their troops. Um, And it goes on to say that the results of his evangelistic efforts could be quantified. During his 12-month command, he saw the S3, S4 communications officer, motor transport officer, two company commanders, and the assault amphibian platoon commander commit their lives to Christ. Isn't it wild that not only will converting to evangelical Christianity save you from eternal damnation in the lake of fire, it'll also improve your OER scores. Wait just a minute, you expect me to believe that all this misbehaving grew from one enchanted tree and help We should all be satisfied with this magical explanation for why the living die and why it's hard to be, hard to be, hard to be a decent. In 1991, Dobson moved the headquarters of Focus on the Family to Colorado Springs, Colorado, where a year later the organization became instrumental in the passage of Amendment 2. 
Amendment 2, or Colorado No Protected Status for Sexual Orientation, was a ballot initiative improved in 1992 that denied LGBTQ legal protections from discrimination. Though it was overturned in the 1996 Supreme Court ruling Romer v. Evans, Amendment 2 had a profound impact on Colorado's LGBTQ community. Last year, I was able to interview a local author and photographer, Dorian Wenzel, whose semi-autobiographical novel, Adventures of a GWF Reborn, GWF is gay white female, for those of you who have never spent time in an AOL chat room, and it documents the life in Amendment 2 era Colorado Springs. It was recently added to the Stonewall National Museum and Archives. Wenzel told me all about life in Colorado Springs during the Amendment 2 days. We did a Celebrate Diversity campaign, she told me. We not only had Celebrate Diversity bumper stickers, we made 8x10 signs and asked the stores to put them in windows to recognize us and support us. It was a big battle. It was half and half here. I actually got screamed at while driving my car just for having that bumper sticker on my car. People would scream at you for just walking down the street with your lover, holding hands. A lot of their people ran for city council and county commissioner seats, and at that time they did have a major influence on politics. That's how they got Amendment 2 on the ballot, says Wenzel. I remember one lady, Betty Beattie, she was a bitch. Beattie was an El Paso County commissioner who opposed allowing same-sex couples to be foster parents and who told TV host Star Jones that only white people are normal. Just for context here, right? Uh, Interesting times in Colorado Springs in the 90s. Focus on the Family was given a bunch of tax breaks to relocate to Colorado, but the ensuing boycott resulting from Amendment 2, where celebrities like Barbara Streisand and businesses and corporations refused to come to Colorado, ended up costing the state millions. Despite the overturning of Amendment 2 in 1996, Focus on the Family continued their anti-LGBTQ activism. In 1998, Focus on the Family launched Love One Out, an ex-gay ministry founded by John Polk, who denounced his belief in conversion therapy in 2013. Love One Out claimed that the goal of the gay agenda is normalization through desensitization, undermining parental moral authority, and equating homosexuality to heterosexuality, and claimed that same-sex attraction is a preventable and treatable condition. If you missed the last episode, I spoke with hypnotist Melvin Marsh, who discussed attempts to use hypnosis to aid in conversion therapy efforts, which, of course, did not work. Since 1998, the American Psychiatric Association has opposed any psychiatric treatment such as reparative or conversion therapy, which is based on the assumption that homosexuality per se is a mental disorder or that a patient should change his or her homosexual orientation. One of the other folks I got to speak with as a reporter was Nancy Jo Morris, a transgender woman. She came out to her wife and family in 1999, but the reception was not great. She enrolled in a kind of 12-step conversion therapy practice. Side tangent, 12-step programs started with Alcoholics Anonymous, which was started in part by weird fascist Christian organization, the Oxford Group. Just throwing that out there. Morris described her conversion therapy experience as a kind of hell that left her feeling suicidal. 
She eventually transitioned in 2004 and was one of the activists who helped lobby for the passage of Colorado's public accommodations law, which allows trans people to use the bathroom. Colorado banned the practice of conversion therapy for minors in 2019, much to focus on the family's dismay. Dobson was also supportive of a group called Promise Keepers, an evangelical men's organization started by Bill McCartney, the former head football coach at the University of Colorado. From Dumez, McCartney had experienced a personal and religious crisis after his daughter had given birth to a child fathered by one of his players. Realizing that he had failed to prioritize his family, he ended up leaving his Catholic church for the Evangelical Vineyard Christian Fellowship. Thinking he wasn't alone in his struggles, he decided to issue a call for the renewal of Christian manhood. The next year, James Dobson promoted Promise Keepers on his radio program, helping to ignite a national movement. By 1994, 278,000 men were attending Promise Keepers events held in stadiums around the country. The next year, 700,000 participated, and the year after that, an estimated 1.2 million. By 1997, the evangelical men's movement had become impossible to ignore. A quick note here about Vineyard Christian Fellowship. A 1992 Baltimore Sun article compared Vineyard Christian Fellowship, which today is Vineyard USA, a network of 2,400 churches in 95 countries, to a cult. From the article, once a month, members of the Anne Arundel Church go to a nearby mall and clean the windows of every car in the lot. They carry groceries for shoppers and hand out free sodas. God loves the community, and we just want to reflect that, said the minister. Detractors, however, say the church's leaders are hurting their own members with unprofessional psychological counseling and cult-like authoritarianism, even as they care for outsiders. Some former members claim the group is cult-like in its attempt to control their lives. Innocent people are being sucked in and abused, said John, who asked that his last name not be used. The 33-year-old contractor said church leaders manipulated him spiritually and emotionally until he sank into clinical depression. He says the church pastor called the depression a demonic spirit, predicted John would commit suicide if he left the church, then kicked him out. He said he sought professional help and now leads a healthy life. This church screws people up, said John. I have seen too many people hurt by them. For Mark, who runs an advertising business, doubts started when, after interviewing for jobs outside the state, he said he was told by the pastor, God does not want you to move to New York. They act like they have a direct line to God, John said. They had me convinced that if I did move, I would be out of God's will. It seems like they want to keep you dumb and stupid. As soon as you ask questions, as in my case, you're a problem. Mark and his wife say they've ha- they they have heard the phrase God has told me so often they shudder at the words. They use this so abusively it hits a raw nerve, said Mark. The couple, like most former members, say their faith is damaged, if not destroyed. They remain fearful of attending other churches and skeptical of Christian leaders. 
California sociologist Ronald Enroth, an evangelical Christian and author of Churches That Abuse, said the rapidly growing vineyard movement has definite problems. While noting that no two vineyard churches are alike and not all are abusive, Mr. Enroth said he has encountered dozens of abusive churches within the movement. There's a strong control orientation on the part of vineyard pastors, a tendency towards authoritarianism with regard to spiritual and non-spiritual aspects of people's lives. There is a real sense of spiritual elitism and a tendency to use fear and guilt as manipulation, he said. I'll link to the full article in the show notes, but this definitely gets to the kind of things we were talking about in the last episode. So to recap, a University of Colorado football coach joins this church network where member churches have been credibly accused of cult-like behavior and then forms this evangelical men's group that gets a huge boost from Focus on the Family. It gets better, though. From Dumez. Dobson's focus on the family had provided critical ongoing support for the organization, and Bill Bright's Campus Crusade for Christ lent Promise Keepers 85 full-time employees. Bright's book, The Coming Revival, in which he railed against abortion, divorce, race riots, sexual promiscuity, the removal of God from public schools, the teaching of evolution, and the homosexual explosion, was sold at all Promise Keepers rallies. Mark DeMoss, the organization's national spokesperson, had worked for Jerry Falwell and had served on Pat Buchanan's presidential campaign. Frequent speakers included Ed Cole, author of Maximized Manhood, and Charles Cole. Wilson, the disgraced Nixon aide who, after converting to evangelicalism, had gone on to found prison fellowship ministries and establish himself as a power broker in the religious right. Beverly Lehigh's Concerned Women for America heartily endorsed the organization, and McCartney himself was a member of Colorado for Family Values and an advocate for Amendment 2, the effort to prohibit granting special rights to homosexuals. For reference, Chuck Colson was Nixon's hatchet man. He did seven months in federal prison in 1974 for Watergate-related charges, and he pled guilty to obstruction of justice for attempting to defame Pentagon Papers defendant Daniel Ellsberg. In 2001, Dobson released another book, Bringing Up the Boys, or Bringing Up Boys, which is a about, you know, exactly what you can imagine from the guy who is, like, pro-spanking, pro-patriarchal family authority. Um, The key to understanding boys, according to Dobson, was testosterone. The hormone made boys competitive, aggressive, assertive, and lovers of cars, trucks, guns, and balls. A masculine will to power was evident in little boys who dressed up as superheroes, cowboys, and Tarzan. It was why boys fought, climbed, wrestled, and strutted around. Feminists and liberals seemed to think that testosterone was one of God's great mistakes. They preferred to make boys more like girls and men more like women feminized, emasculated, and wimpified. But reprogramming men and boys interfered with God's careful design. Interesting use of reprogramming there, uh, again, given, you know, last week's episode. Um, The book sold two million copies, and old Chuck Colson said, it just could save America. I'm sure he was predicting the great toilet paper crisis of 2020. 
but I digress. In 2003, Dobson came to the defense of Roy Moore, then an Alabama Supreme Court justice, who refused to remove a Ten Commandments monument. The monument was eventually removed, and so was Moore, although he returned to the bench in 2012. Most people know Moore from his 2017 Senate run to replace uh, Jeff Sessions, where a lot of people express concern for Moore's past history of trying to pick up 14-year-old girls when he was 32 at the mall. Not Dobson, though, who called him a man of proven character and integrity and a champion for families who would govern the nation with biblical wisdom. It probably won't surprise you then that Dobson also defended former President Trump after a 2019 Christianity Today editorial called for his impeachment. I have read a new editorial published by Christianity Today that promotes impeachment of President Donald Trump. The editors didn't tell us who should take his place in the aftermath. Maybe the magazine would prefer a president who is passionately pro-abortion, anti-family, hostile to the military, dispassionate towards Israel, supports a socialist form of government, promotes confiscatory taxation, opposes school choice, favors men and women's sports and boys and girls locker rooms, promotes the entire LGBTQ agenda, opposes parental rights, and distrusts evangelicals and anyone who is not politically correct. By the way, after Christianity Today has helped vacate the Oval Office, I hope they will tell us if their candidate to replace Mr. Trump will fight for religious liberty and the Bill of Rights. Give your readers a little more clarity on why President Trump should be turned out of office after being duly elected by 63 million voters. Is it really because he made a phone call that displeased you? There must be more in your argument than that. While Christianity Today is making its case for impeachment, I hope the editors will now tell us who they support for president among the Democrat field. That should tell us the rest of the story. According to their annual report, Focus on the Family took in $100,912,980 in 2020. Tax-free because they're a church. Like the Family Research Council, which as of this year, is also a church. Speaking of finances, the last thing we'll mention today is this 2022 article about one of Focus on the Family's major donors. Bill Huang was hailed as part of a new evangelical donor class for donating nearly $80 million to dozens of evangelical ministries. But his fortune, which it turned out was based on lies, heavy borrowing, and risky stock bets, blew up in March 2021 when he was unable to pay creditors. Over three days, $100 billion in shareholder value disappeared, causing stocks to plummet and banks to lose more than $10 billion. On Wednesday, April 27, Huang was arrested and charged with racketeering conspiracy, securities fraud, and wire fraud. Prosecutors said Huang's crime was brazen and historic, but he pleaded not guilty, and his lawyers have claimed the case has absolutely no factual or legal basis. A Huang business associate was also arrested and charged Wednesday, as well as two former employees who have pleaded guilty and are cooperating with prosecutors. Huang was the founder of Arc 
Kagos Capital Management, and his Grace and Mercy Foundation donated billions to ministries including International Justice Mission, Luis Palau Association, Prison Fellowship, there's Chuck Colson again, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, The King's College, Young Life, The Navigators, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Crew, Youth for Christ, Focus on the Family, where he was credited as a content contributor, and Fuller Seminary, where he served as a trustee. Archegos is a Greek word used in the New Testament to describe Christ. It's not clear what will happen with Grace and Mercy Foundation, which helped Huang avoid capital gains taxes and secure significant tax write-offs. Huang's scheme was simple. He lied to multiple banks in order to get loans, invested in risky stock bets using security-based swaps, which allow investors to profit from stocks they don't own, then used gains to borrow even more money from the banks, including Credit Suisse, which lost more than $5 billion. In one year, Huang's portfolio ballooned from $1.5 billion to $35 billion, according to the New York Times. After his wealth evaporated, New York Magazine called Huang the man who collapsed Wall Street. Huang's father was a pastor and his mother was a missionary to Mexico. He frequently discussed the role of faith in his work, like in this video that is no longer available on the Fuller Seminary website but can be seen here. Many ministries that took Huang's money were unaware of his criminal past. In 2012, his hedge funds, Tiger Asia Management and Tiger Asia Partners, paid $44 million to settle a lawsuit with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission after he pled guilty to charges of insider trading and stock manipulation. That settlement required Huang to stay away from the investment advisory industry, a technical requirement he met by establishing Archegos as a family office. Huang's scheme exploited a loophole in SEC regulations by operating as a family office, which is supposed to oversee one family's assets, not the assets of many investors, and is subject to less stringent financial oversight and reporting than traditional hedge funds. Pretty wild, huh? There is currently a lawsuit against Huang's Grace and Mercy Foundation from former managing director Brendan Sullivan. This is from a Christianity Today article about the lawsuit. Huang described the foundation as his escape pod, and when Archegos was in trouble, Huang frequently told concerned employees that if the firm collapsed, he could move them to the foundation and use its capital to restart another investment firm, Archegos 2.0. Sullivan said that Huang considered transferring grace and mercy assets to Archegos, but did not after receiving counsel that it would be illegal. Huang mentioned that some Archegos employees would be given foundation money to start their own investment funds, from which the foundation could generate management fees, Sullivan alleges.
focus on the family, the Family Research Council and Dobson continue to have a huge impact on national politics, pushing for attacks on LGBTQ rights, abortion, racial and social justice, you name it. You can find the same talking points being spouted by conservative politicians at all levels, from school boards to the White House. If you're in Colorado, you can follow my work at the Colorado Times Recorder, where I am dutifully documenting all of this stuff. Next time, we'll be at Kairos Coffee here in Colorado Springs, which is owned by scandal-ridden international ministry, Youth with a Mission. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or tell a friend or whatever it is you do with podcasts. Um, you can connect with us on Twitter at, at Western Fringe, W-S-T-R-N Fringe, or drop us a line at westernfringe at protonmail.com. This episode was brought to you by Odds and Ends Emporium, a woman-owned toy and gift shop located at the Ivy Wild School in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Visit oddsandendsemporium.com to see their wide selection of unique toys and gifts. Until next time. <laughs>